Ever wondered what it would be like studying Spanish at the University of Oxford? Sit in on my conversations with Spanish tutors to find out what's so fascinating about the literature they teach, why they love teaching it, and why they think you might love it too. Hi Maria, can you hear me? Hi Christy, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Well, my name is Maria del Pilar Blanco and I am an associate professor in Spanish American literature at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm also the fellow and tutor in Spanish at Trinity College and I am an associate lecturer at Worcester College in Oxford. Great. So what is the name of the text we'll be speaking about and who wrote it? The text that we are going to discuss today is Cartucho. Um, and it was written by an author called Nelly Campobello, a Mexican author. And so tell me a bit about the form of the text. Is it prose or poetry, for example? Campobello's Cartucho is a set of scenes of the revolution. It is a prose text that works on a fragmentary level. Um, most of the fragments that you see in Campobello's Cartucho are anywhere from two pages to maybe four pages long. Um, so it's almost like one scene after another, after another, and these are actually connected, but um, they're also very much distinct from each other. What's the text about in broad terms? The subtitle of, of Campobello's Cartucho is Relatos de la Lucha en el Norte de México. And um, by relato, it's just, you know, it's again, I would translate it as scenes from the battles of the north of Mexico. And the battles that she, that, that Campobello is referring to here are um, the conflicts that occurred in the north of Mexico um, in the period that begins sort of 1916, 17 and moves into 1920 in Chihuahua, which is a region um, in the north of Mexico with a border and the border with uh, the United States. So, um, the text is a set of recollections by Nelly Campobello, who was a young girl growing up in this very um, turbulent time, um, in a very um, turbulent city. Um, and she retells the things that she saw when she was a young girl. And she's trying to give you a sense of what it felt like and what it looked like to a young girl at that time. Um, and this is one of the most amazing things about this text is the fact that for whoever is a student of um, Mexican revolution literature or anyone who's starting to read Mexican revolution literature, they will be very used to a narrative voice that is usually a man um, somebody um, who is usually um, quite omniscient as well um, as a narrator. And here what you have is a very interesting voice of a girl. And we also have to think about that other layer. Nelly Campobello wrote this in 1931. So there she is as a grown, grown up woman living in Mexico City at this point, thinking back to what the world looked like and felt like when she was a girl. So she's inhabiting in many ways, the perspective that she had as a little girl in this very, very tumultuous time. 
Mm, and that's really interesting. Um, so you picked up in particular about the fact that Campobello is um, a woman author. So was it common for women in Mexico to publish literature at the time that um, Cartucho was published? Was reading and writing already seen as a, a sort of female space? Not a lot of women were publishing, no. Um, I think that the established military establishment was not very friendly to women, especially in terms of the publication of full texts. There definitely were women readers. We have to think that in the period in which the Mexican Revolution is happening, the, the, the readership in Mexico is actually a very reduced readership anyway. I always like to tell my students um, one interesting statistic about the period that I teach, and I, I teach normally the last few decades of the 19th century. And there you have a literacy rate um, of about 10 to 15%. So the people who were reading in Mexico in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, I think that the literacy rates start going up definitely in the 20th century, and they, got, they go up dramatically uh, after the revolution. But you have to think that it's not a big readership. It's nowhere near the amount of readers that the United Kingdom had um, at, at this point in time. But those people who did read, um, many of them um, were, uh, were women because um, you have to think also that, that the biggest venue for readerships, for, 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 for literature to come out um, in and, and this period were magazines. And a lot of these magazines were read by women. A lot of literary magazines were read by women and a lot of literature appeared in newspapers and in newspaper supplements. But I would say that in terms of publishing a novel, if it was difficult for men, it was absolutely difficult for women to publish at this time. And it was definitely, you could say that Nelly Campobello's Cartucho stands apart in this whole corpus that we call the novela de la Revolución Mexicana, the novel of the Mexican Revolution or literature, autofiction about the revolution. It's mostly a male canon. And so she, um, she definitely is somebody who brings in a much needed perspective from the point of view of a woman, of a young woman. And so in terms of literary style then, is there anything that sets Cartucho apart from this male literary canon? Nelly Campobello has been associated with, um, actually personally associated with somebody called Martin Luis Guzman, who is a writer, um, a very, very well-known writer, who um, is the author of a very... A, very, a lot of books, but one of them is, is called El Aguila y la Serpiente, the, um, the Eagle and the Serpent, which is one of the most important accounts of the Mexican Revolution. And it works somewhere between fiction and autobiography because he himself was somebody who, who was an intellectual who traveled uh, through Mexico in the revolution and reported back about the revolution. If you put that next to Nelly Campobello's Cartucho, you, you see something entirely different. As I said, Nelly Campobello's Cartucho is, is a set of fragments. They're not heavy on historical detail. It's not, um, it's not something, you're not getting a history book account of this, uh, uh, of, of the things that she was seeing. 
what you get is a set of very personal impressions. And I, and I think that the word impression here is very interesting because you have to think about an impression. If you think of, of a hand just touching um, a photographic film and then leaving a, a bit of an imprint. So she has that, it's a very, it's a very tenuous um, uh, type of account, incomplete. You know, she, she, she purposely gives you these brief fragments that are incomplete stories but it's the story of what, of how something felt very intensely at a given moment. And I think because what you said before about a much needed female perspective of the, the revolution or, or multiple female voices, uh, really, I'm sort of interested as to how female characters are, are presented um, in the text and whether the characters conform to conventional understandings of gender at the time in, in Mexico or not. It's a very conservative society that you're looking at. This is a society that has emerged from a period um, of government that lasted a very long time called the Porfiriato, which was the presidency of General Porfirio Diaz that took, who took power in 1877 and who was ousted around 1910. And this, this, the revolution was at first a reaction to the potential re-election of, of um, Porfirio Diaz. And so what you have is, a, is, is, is kind of remnants of that society of the Porfiriato, which is a very Catholic, very moralistic society. Women were very much kept in their place, but um, there's, there's a, a group of women who are very interesting and, and have been mythologized since um, in the Mexican revolution called the Soldaderas. And they were, um, women who accompanied the men as they were fighting and who, you know, they could tote a gun, but they were mostly there to, um, to cook for the men and to tend to the men. Um, so you could say that these wartime women um, are, they don't, perhaps they, they don't fit the bill of the, um, of the traditional Mexican woman um, from the years of the revolution. But, but that's not what Nelly Campobello or her mother are. Her mother, they're, they're very much, you know, people who are uh, very much confined to the home. Um, we don't see um, Nelly Campobello's mother being a professional woman. She's just trying to get by and, and, um, and make do with what she has. And it's, it's a very, yeah, it's, they, 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 they are very much a tight, tightly knit domestic unit. And it's a very traditional Thing you're not going to recognize. You're not going to see the absolute modern woman emerging out of this uh, out of this narrative. No. And I suppose I'm also interested in the role of politics in the literature of the Mexican Revolution. Was literature seen as an important um, political tool, or was it sort of dangerous for literature to be political? That's a, that's a very good question. I um, I think that. At this point, literature is always political because um, a lot of the people who are writing up to this point are writers who have perhaps some kind of affiliation with the government um, or who have some affiliation with those in power. This is a phenomenon of Latin American literature in general is that a lot of the authors that you're going to read from the 19th century into the 20th century 
especially the beginning of the 20th century, are writers that also do other things, are writers that are engaged um, in some other job, whether they're diplomats, whether they're lawyers, whether they're presidents of countries. Um, but 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 the, in the in the in the general genre of the novel of the Mexican Revolution, you have a set of people who are affiliated somehow to the conflict. Nelly Campobello is not somebody who works uh, in that manner with the government. Nelly Campobello, what she did, she was a dancer her whole life and she, and she was the director of a school of ballet. Um, of, uh, and, and, and in that sense, she belongs to the kind of cultural machine of the state, right? But, 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 but she is able, um, I think when she's writing Cartucho, it's very much, um, she's able to write something that is actually quite dangerous at the time uh, because um, she, she also states her admiration for somebody who perhaps was not admired by everybody and that's um, General Pancho Villa was possibly the most famous face of the Mexican Revolution. Um, I am not aware of whether she got into trouble for this, um, but um, but definitely some of the opinions that she puts forward here are dangerous. Um, if 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 you're not if you don't agree with her, yes. And. Just briefly thinking, I suppose, about someone that might be picking up the text for the first time. Is there anything that you would encourage a first-time reader to look out for or to really think about in detail while they're reading? I would be very interested in for, I mean, I, the best kind of reader is the first-time reader of anything because there's that, that there is a that that's a very good level that's a very good sense of naivety i don't i don't like to think of naivety as ignorance naivety that the naive reader is the reader who can just sit down and discover something for the first time and i think anybody would be very surprised with this book um i would like for if if i were to tell somebody watch out for this i would want people to think of this text form and by that I mean it's the level of its composition the the way that she has chosen to build a narrative that doesn't have chapters doesn't have progression that you could see much more as a mosaic rather than a linear account of the revolution um, and I'm also very in I would like to ask people to think very intently about the choice of language the way that she puts the starkest simplicity on what must have been terrifying events. A big part of studying Spanish at Oxford is looking at literary texts in a lot of detail. So I'm asking Maria to pick out one of the scenes from this text so we can analyse it a bit more closely. So I've chosen a very short fragment called Desde una ventana from a window and it's a page and a half long. And it's an account where you can clearly see the young Campobello in her house, looking from a window um, outside into the street, and she witnesses a murder. She witnesses um, an official killing somebody else. And for days, three nights, the body of the dead man was, sit was there lying in front of her house and she develops an affection towards it. She, um, 
she becomes close to it. She was fascinated by it. And then they take the body away and she starts missing that body. And she ends on saying that that night she was dreaming or hoping that they would kill another one so that she could have another dead body in front of her house. So is the tone of the passage one of horror and shock or is it more that this is really quite normal? It's the tone of absolute everyday quotidian happening. At nowhere in this passage, when you read it, do you see an exclamation mark? Do you see the word, oh my God, how horrific? <laughs> you, do you see any kind of phrasing like that? No, she reduces it. She, she, puts, she sets it back into an everyday experience. It's like, you know, I would check on it every once in a while, just like, you know, you would check on some stew that was cooking in, in the kitchen. It's, it's that it's that normalized. Mm. Despite the fact that this seems very normal and this going on just outside the house, is it still clear that the narrative voice is coming from that of a young girl? Yes, for me, um, I it's coming for me it's coming from the perspective of a young girl. Um, at certain points and then there's other things that I'm like wow you you were really if this was a young girl remembering uh, without the filter of the older author remembering you know trying to kind of um, channel that that youthful voice there are some you know it, it would be a very savvy very worldly young woman there's a moment in which well the, the man is about is is um is killed with numerous bullet holes, you know, with numerous shots, and uh, we are um, we are treated to the the phrase um, that these bullets incrustaron en su cuerpo hinchado de alcohol y cobardía. So, um, a very loose translation here is that the bullets entered incrustar is like you know were buried in his body which was swollen with alcohol and cowardice and that idea of a cuerpo hinchado de alcohol y cobardía that seems to come from a later uh, a, a more grown-up perspective um, because um, wow I mean what a way to describe the body of, of uh, the, the body of a man who, who has just been shot right but maybe this is a girl who already knows about um, the way that alcohol, you know, alcoholic consumption was enormous and almost necessary for the toleration of death. But, you know, the man who was about to be shot probably wanted to be drunk so that it would not hurt as much. So there's something, it's something very, very unsettling there about, about how much she had to learn too quickly so speaking a bit about striking imagery and language in this particular passage, is there any imagery that you want to pull out from the passage um, as being particularly important? Well, looking at the passage, it begins very simply. Una ventana de dos metros de altura en una esquina. It's not even a sentence. Um, and so you have not only the fragment in terms of chapters that are fragments, but also sentences that are fragments. And 
um, it's two girls because it's 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 Campo Bello, and another girl looking um, at this group of of men who are about who are pointing a gun um, at this person who's about to be killed. To my students, I always tell them um, at the moment of death. So I've just given you the idea of el cuerpo hinchado de alcohol y cobardía, and then you have another sentence that I I find it, it absolutely floors me. It goes, un salto terrible al recibir los balazos, luego cayó manándole sangre por muchos agujeros. So you have two moments, two pictures to look at, to consider. One is that what, how the body jumps, um, reacting to the, the shots, right? And he, she calls it a salto terrible. So there you have the word terrible, which is, you know, it, it grapples with the trauma, right? It, 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 you know, that, that there is a kind of judgment on what we're seeing being horrible. But then something that really strikes me is that idea of the body falling and then there's blood squirting or like emanating por muchos agujeros. And now I tell people, um, when we think of a wound, you know, because the, the person had received a lot of wounds. Well, the word for wound in Spanish is herida. And here, Campobello uses the word agujero, which is holes. And when I think of agujero, I don't know if like I have, if you think of agujeros on a wall, you know, holes in a wall or something like that. So the fact that she chose agujeros and she decided not to talk about heridas, in a way, kind of dehumanizes the body for me, um, making it a thing, is what I mean. Um, so you have the movement from that terrible, the, the kind of awful signs of the last moments of death, of the, of the death moment, and then you have an objectification of the body in the second part of the sentence, and I find that amazing. So that's really interesting that you know, clearly vocabulary has been chosen very carefully. Are there any other examples of vocabulary that you want to pick out from the passage as being um, significant or particularly powerful? Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I've just read you, that was, that was the first paragraph of this three paragraph passage. The second paragraph is amazing. And if I may read it out loud, and then I'm going to take you through it. Um, it goes, Como estuvo tres noches tirado, ya me había acostumbrado a ver el garabato de su cuerpo, caído hacia su izquierda, con las manos en la cara, durmiendo allí, junto de mí. Me parecía mío aquel muerto. Había momentos que, temerosa de que se lo hubieran llevado, me levantaba corriendo y me trepaba en la ventana. Era mi obsesión en las noches. Me gustaba verlo porque me parecía que tenía mucho miedo. Okay, so in that second paragraph, you have the idea of the duration of the body not being picked up, not being taken away to a morgue or to wherever its, its um, resting place was going to be. And what you see there is the word garabato, a ver el garabato de su cuerpo. Me había acostumbrado a ver el garabato de su cuerpo. If you think of garabato, garabato is kind of like a, a scribble or a mangling of, of something. So the you can immediately see the body, but it's not described in the way that a body would be described. 
Um, we tend to actually also associate garabato with writing, with scripture, with, with you know, with, with inscribing. So the fact that a body is a garabato is, is, is quite interesting, but it's almost like a mess of a thing. Um, so notice how she, she has done again, something which objectifies, which depersonalizes, with, with, you know, it, 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 it's, it creates a dist an immediate distance. Um, but then again, it's a kind of, what you have is a tug, a, a game of tug of war because you have the objectification and then you go back to a kind of endearment with the body. You have that body sleep and he says durmiendo allí junto de mí she thinks it's sleeping it looks more like a sleeping body rather than a dead body then she has that very incredible line very short line me parecía mío aquel muerto he seemed like he was mine she starts getting possessive of it so you start noticing rather disturbingly that the dead body is almost like seeing a dead ragdoll outside. Um, so she starts using the word, the, the, the vocabulary of possession and mio. Um, it, was, it, it was my obsession, era mi obsesión en las noches. Um, and so again, it's just, it's just that idea that perhaps, you know, this is, this is all that she was, she could have to look forward to. Um, there's that realization, but also the idea that what was a political event or one of the many chapters, many senseless chapters of a political conflict. This is how it, what it gets reduced to when you have two girls looking out a window and seeing an execution. Mm. And just to round our analysis of the, the passage off as such, can we talk a little bit about that final line which you mentioned before and is is really quite disturbing yeah i mean this is this is really one of the most devastating passages of 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 Nelly Campobello's cartucho in my opinion um when they take the body you have the sentence um that says el muerto tímido había sido robado por alguien La tierra se quedó dibujada y sola. So, the, la tierra, I love that phrase, la tierra se quedó dibujada y sola. So, so you can see that perhaps the, the very faint outline of the body was still on the street, but then it felt alone. Something had been taken away. To me, it also, it, in, in a way, it speaks about the things that you become attached to, even in the bleakest times. Yeah. You wonder whether this child had a lot to play with, very many things to play with, very many things to entertain her. And then this was in a way, a weird form of entertainment, but it was also this body becomes a form of solace for her because it had permanence about it because it was there and it wasn't moving. And perhaps in, if you have, if you think of what she was probably seeing, which was like a film reel of one event after another, and you know, one commotion after another, the stillness of this body is very consoling. And then they take it away from her, and she has this kind of evocation of the childish dream that maybe there will be again something that she can look out the window, and it'll be just there. Um, 
so so many things that we can extrapolate from that but it um it shows you i think there's something quite interesting here about the contrast between stillness and movement and stillness and 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 um lots of change and lots of uproar and upheaval um and how as at this point in this very dark moment it's the dead body that is that thing of permanence for the perspective of a young child and that's that's something that you really really take away from from the story it's a very horrifying thing but it also there's a beauty of it there's a beauty in, in the way that she says it so calmly with so much aplomb um and I, that you just don't know you know it, it really it, the, i can only describe it as haunting thinking about applying for modern languages at uni well keep up to date with the latest episodes of the podcast and find out about our upcoming outreach events by following us on twitter at oxmml underscore schools you might also like to take a look at our modern languages blog adventures on the bookshelf This podcast was created by Professor Ben Bollig, produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and brought to you by the Sub-Faculty of Spanish at the University of Oxford. Special thanks goes to the tutors that participated and the Taylor Institution Library. <laughs>